Hello and welcome to Film Inquiries, the latest. This is a podcast series tackling the latest movie news, movie trends, and movie releases. I'm your host, Jesse Nussman. And on the other line, attempting to figure out why her favorite movie came in at number 59 instead of number 58 on the Sight and Sound poll, it's Emily Wheeler, everyone. Uh, yes, I wish my favorite movie came in at 58 instead of 59, uh, or 59 instead of 58. Unfortunately, mine did not make it on the list at all, but I'm sure we'll get into that. Oh, dang. Yeah, so this this week, uh, we're going to be talking about, uh, I think largely I wanted to have a conversation about the sight and sound poll of the 100 greatest movies. Um, for anyone who doesn't know what this is, um, sight and sound is a British film magazine, and Every 10 years since the 50s, I believe the first year they did it was 1952, they send out uh, a poll for uh, film critics and film journalists, as well as there's a separate director's poll, and attempt to compile a list of the 100 greatest movies ever. And, you know, there's other magazines and other places that do this. The AFI list is another, like, very famous one that I'm sure, like me, you kind of grew up with like that is like a big signature go-to to to, like you need to check these movies off uh your you know watch list um but the sight and sound poll i feel like has because they only do it every 10 years it kind of has this extra elevated status from a lot of the other polls and came out recently uh the 2022 version and there's just a lot of, of chatter online about what what movies showed up in what places. Uh, one of the things they kind of did this year is really expand the number of people they reached out to. So I think typically it's around little. I think the 2012 one was like a little over 800 people. There's something like 1600 people that were reached out to for this poll this time. And that had some kind of drastic changes to the kind of list of movies that we think of as kind of like the the quote-unquote canon the like the these are in the in the history books is like the the great movies you need to see the sort of best of the best um and we can talk about the director's poll a little bit as well although that one kind of didn't fluctuate i think as much as the critics poll um and maybe hasn't been as much of a, a a sort of subject of debate online um but I'm I'm curious to you, Emily, of like what are like me, you're sort of obsessed with the idea of like the canon and of list making and uh you know, what your thoughts were kind of checking through this most recent sight and sound poll. I'm perhaps an interesting person to have on to talk about this, because I'm actually not a big um I'm not necessarily a big advocate of these lists or like mm-hmm. a canon or anything like that. Like I understand their purpose. Um, I certainly understand that there is a need to say, like, these are important movies that you should see if you're really wanting to take this seriously. Like, if you're wanting to be a film critic, if you're wanting, if you're really interested in films, here's a good place to start. I think that's the, to me, like, the purpose of these lists and where they're actually useful. I've never approached these lists as, like, I have to check off every single one. And, like, when I glanced at this list, I was kind of like, yeah, I think I think I came up with, like, I've seen, like, 60 of the 100, which seems about right with how I yeah. normally come up with these lists. Um, I'm just not big on checking off every single one that people think, or quote-unquote, in the canon, people think is important. Because I think that tends to be a very restrictive idea. 
kind of as you already alluded to, you know, this list, they greatly expanded the number of people who got to vote on it. Historically, anytime you're talking about something that makes up the canon, it's from a very small group of people. Um, As you said, it was like 1600 people voted this year, the, the last 10 years ago. So 2012, when they voted, there was about 800. And then before that, it had always been like 100 to 150 people, is my understanding, voting on this. Mm -hmm. So like, a very small group of people. I kind of understand what kind of sight and sounds aesthetic is. I think also another thing to keep in mind of these disparate things that kind of come together to form the canon, each have their own taste, each have their own kind of what they're going to more veer towards and prioritize than others. And um, obviously there's ways to kind of make sure that keeps happening with who you select on who you're going to vote for. Again, I think it's important to keep all of these things in mind and just kind of use these lists as jumping off points and then find the stuff that you like within these lists and really dig into those areas and spend time on the stuff that really excites you. Yeah, I I think, and I'm not even one of those people. I I kind of roll my eyes a little bit and I don't really want us to do it on, on this show of the, you know, people that are like, kind of as I joked in the intro, like, I can't believe this got 38, but this other thing got 40. Like that's absurd or something of like, I, I, there's there's an art to list making i'm someone who like for fun makes tons of lists on like letterbox and stuff like that and you know there there is an an, you know i i I guess i could describe like some of what the thought process of what i've seen some critics who voted in this like what they were thinking in because how the sight and sound poll works for anyone who doesn't know is they essentially reach out to all these people and you send in 10 movies you would like to see on the list and then they compile all those votes and the ones with the most get highest on the list and um you know some stuff doesn't make it and then it fills out from one to 100 that makes sense um but like you said i like it as a collection here here are sort of like 100 movies that if you're really into film you should check out and that a lot of people are really advocating for i think it's been interesting to look at as I said, the reasons people put the movies that they did on their ballot, um, some saying, I'm going to approach this from like a historical perspective of like the 10 movies I'm going to put down are like the 10 movies I think are important to film as an artistic medium and have like huge historical importance. Other people saying, I want this to be a very diverse list, whether that means very diverse in terms of different genres and the different forms that film can appear in whether it be documentary genre films uh art house stuff animated or even diversity in terms of the nationalities the genders the races of the people on the ballot and then some people just saying i just put my 10 favorite movies on there and then other people you know i think part of what we do as film critics a lot is we like to evangelize for stuff and say like all right I feel really passionate about this movie that I don't feel like I feel like it should be discussed among the greats of the greats. Um, but maybe other people don't. So I'm going to put, you know, extra effort into saying like this movie that only I think is really cool needs to be on the ballot or something like that. And that's such a fascinating thought process. Um, I, I think that last point is why, you know, a lot of times people kind of complain on like critics lists, like, well, why are all these movies that I've never heard of on there, you know, among, you know, as opposed to like the biggest movies that come out each year. And a lot of times, just to be honest, it comes down to like a lot of critics want to sort of champion stuff where it's like, 
if you're not speaking up for it, maybe no one's going to hear about it or no one's going to want to check it out. And so I, I think it's fascinating getting this list and then hearing about all the varying different strategies people had for why they wanted to put the stuff they want on there. Um, I think just a quick kind of like history lesson for anyone. And then we can kind of get into some of the interesting trends of, of this list and what this means for kind of the idea of building a canon. Um, you know, when the list first came out in 1952, Bicycle Thieves, the Italian movie, was the number one spot. Uh, then in 1962, all the way up through 2002, Citizen Kane, the movie that I think many of us grew up hearing is like, that's the greatest American movie ever made. That was the top of the list. Uh, and then in 2012, there was uh, it sort of got unseated by Alfred Hitchcock's Vertigo, took the top spot. And then this year, um, kind of in, I think, a surprise move for uh, a lot of people, um, Jean Delmen, I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly, uh, a French movie took the top spot. Um, I had honestly, I'm going to I'm gonna do some, be open on this mic. I had not seen this movie until this morning, which, which was exciting to me of just sort of like, oh, here's a great movie that I've not seen before. If anyone doesn't know, this is a 1975 French mil- film from... Uh, Chantel Ackerman uh, is basically like follows this widowed housewife as she kind of goes through her day-to-day chores and kind of taking care of her teenage son and occasionally working as a prostitute in order to sort of make money. And it's a very long movie. It's three and a half hours long. It's very, very slow moving, very, very observational. Um, You know, I, I would say my initial takeaway after watching it i I think it is kind of like a masterclass movie in character as defined by behavior of you you are just sort of watching this movie and watching this woman go through her routine and having to keep track of sort of the specific slight shifts in how she does these these different chores around the house and that sort of affecting kind of her inner psyche or being reflective of of how she's feeling of how she is moving through the world. Um, I'm curious, was this a movie that you had seen before and kind of what your takeaways are from seeing it so high on this list? So you did more homework than me because I had not seen John Dealman and I did not squeeze it in this morning. <laughs> it's it's, this it's yeah. a tall, it's a tall task to to fit it in. I mean, I mean, not just because of it's, it's a long movie, but like, you know, it's, it it is a challenging work. It it like really requires your patience and to sort of sit there and kind of give yourself over to this movie. You know, it is not a like have your phone out and be checking Twitter as you're kind of half watching it. Like you you really have to give yourself over to it and it is like a very very like hard art house movie essentially. Yeah, I mean, it is a movie I've been aware of. I've been intending to get to it for a while. It's just, you know, it's one of those things. There's a long list of movies I think we all have that we intend to get to. We know we probably should have seen by now. And it's just one of those. It's on my list. It's hard to get to all of them. You'll never get to all of them. Um, I certainly have enough of a, you know, functional understanding of what this movie is in order to understand, like, the the big times when people reference it. I can under- I can recognize those things like that. I understand it's a very important movie. Again, I intend to get to it. I will eventually. Um, one of the things kind of as you're referencing the reason I haven't gotten to it, even though I believe it is available to stream on the Criterion channel. Yes, that's where I watched okay. it this morning. Yeah. Um, one of the reasons I haven't gotten to it is for the exact reason you're saying is that like, I know it's a movie that you have to just like sit down and like 
throw your phone away and like just keep concentrated on it. And for three and a half hours, if I'm sitting in my home, I'm going to struggle to do that. So it's kind of a movie I'm like, maybe it'll play in theater sometimes. Like I really need to see it in a theater to really get it like actually focus correctly on it. So that's one of the reasons I haven't gotten to it. Um, I do think it, it did cause kind of very odd conversations that it came in first to me. Um, obviously you have some people doing like saying, oh, the, the, the sight and sound poll has gotten politicized because, oh, this, you know, very like ultra feminist movie came in first. Da, da, da. And I think that's one, I dislike any argument like that. Cause I fundamentally disagree that art isn't political. I don't know how you discuss art without having politics be involved. I also think if you're surprised by something by like John Dielman, I'm a little surprised that John Dielman came in first, but I mean, it had been on the list before it's been hovering around everyone as, as, as we've kind of said, like if you study film, you're aware of John Dielman or have seen it. It's certainly like not a totally out of nowhere pick to be number one. I also think it's not an out of nowhere pick to be number one, given the politics that's gone on in the last 10 years and particularly in how you view film. I mean, there's been a very big rise in some kind of discussing feminist um, feminist viewpoints in film, and it, not 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 that it hasn't existed before. Obviously, John Dielman is a film from 1975. This has been around for a long time. It's just coming more and more into the mainstream, and hence is starting to influence these lists more and more. Um, and, and even outside of these lists, I think it's becoming much more important more broadly as people are able to. People who find this film, I think particularly women, very influential, have been able to establish careers better because of this political movement. They're able to work in a lot of different genres and a lot of different mediums. And so this film has been popping up as reference points um, in a lot of different things and not just in super art house things. Like if anyone watched the miniseries on Hulu, I think it's Mrs. America that had uh, was set in the 70s, you know, had Kate Blanchett in it, it, had all these huge names. It was a very big miniseries. And it ends on a direct reference to Jean Dielman. Um, it ends with Kate Blanchett, I think, peeling a potato or whatever it is, or an apple. That is a direct and like a very famous reference to Jean Dielman. So, I mean, this movie has been gaining prominence both in critical and in mainstream uh, capacities over the last 10 years in major ways. So I'm not really that surprised that it moved quite a bit up the list or that it ended at number one. Yeah, and I think also just sort of knowing how these lists kind of put together that I kind of talked about, like, I, you know, th this is an interesting movie to pair next to, um, you know, Vertigo came in at number two, uh, Citizen Kane in number three. Both of those movies are movies that, like, when they first come came out, were not sort of received rapturously as these, like, epic masterpieces. I mean, Citizen Kane, I think, like, you know, very clearly established Orson Welles as this big figure in the movie industry but that is a movie that it's it's sort of placement in the quote-unquote canon for lack of a better word sort of came decades later with film academics and kind of like the late 50s and into the 1960s sort of advocating for it and saying like no this is a very important signature american work um and that's how that sort of then gets to the top of the sight and sound poll for so many years and the top of the afi poll and Vertigo is like another example of that. A Vertigo comes out is not very well received. People kind of see it as kind of a, a miss by Alfred Hitchcock and this weird movie that kind of doesn't make sense and now operates on this strange dream logic and is kind of pervy. And then it sort of takes several decades for people to come around and this sort of second wave of appreciation for Vertigo and that kind of, I think, cresting with the 2012 poll of people being like, 
no, we we need to like firmly stick our stake in the ground of like Vertigo, one of the great cinematic masterpieces. And I feel like it's easy to also see that happening with this movie of like you said, it's it's not like it's been anonymous, but you know, a very acclaimed, clearly very, very influential movie. I think watching it this morning, most of my takeaway was just the various different kinds of, uh, for lack of a better word, slow cinema that have kind of been influenced by this and sort of requiring you to sort of sit and be still and be observational. As you said, the sort of um, feminist political message of this movie. Uh, Also just, I feel like us being in a moment in terms of the critical conversation around movies where I think a lot of critics have been really championing small stories about sort of specific people in specific situations for lack of a better word um very i think a better way to explain it like very small humanist stories being something that people really want to the champion right now and this is kind of like a perfect example of that it, it is sort of the ultimate example of that if you were watching someone do the the most kind of what we would think of as mundane of activities but letting letting the way they go through um the rituals of their day tell you something about them as a character and sort of inform you as an audience. And that's how I think you get something like this kind of jumping up. I mean, I, 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 as like you said, I sort of rolled my eyes at the people that were like, Oh, this is like a forced diversity pick because you know, we got to We got to have a woman at the number one spot and was like, no, if you know how these lists are made, I'm sure a lot of people, I'm sure some people in, in all good faith were like, you know what? I want to have more female representation on here. So I'm going to try to have on my ballot, like at least one or two movies directed by women. Um, And I'm sure a lot of other people were just sort of like, this is a, this is a great movie that I feel like is acclaimed in sort of small academic film circles, but should be discussed on the same sort of broad swath of critical discourse as, the searchers or Casablanca or citizen Kane or, you know, Fellini's eight and a half. And this being sort of the, the now decades later, big push to say like, no, this is one of the, the like great, important, very influential movies in cinema history, essentially. Uh, yeah. I'm curious kind of, it's along the same lines, but I'm curious because he threw out the searchers there. So I'm assuming that you have seen the searchers. Do you like the searchers? Um, I like The Searchers, but also kind of understand. I I think it fits in in a box of movies to me that some of the quote-unquote problems of The Searchers are what makes The Searchers sort of interesting of like, I I see that movie more as sort of a movie about uh, a, a, a sort of very racist man who the world is sort of moving past him in a way. And, you know, I, I could certainly hear the argument of people saying like, well, maybe it, it, you know, of saying that the John Wayne character is supposed to be heroic in that movie. I, I having like only seen that movie, I think I watched it for the first time during the pandemic and was like, no, that's not the takeaway I have of this at all. I mean, regardless of whether that that was the intention, like very clearly saw it as like, this is a story about a, a man out of time and what that kind of like great last shot in the doorway being is like, this man is is isolated and alone, and the world is going to move past him and his kind of uh, regressive viewpoints. Um, 
I don't know. I assume you have a hot take about the searchers you're about to unload or something. No, I don't. I don't think it's no. in a hot take at all. I think. I think one of the things that I was surprised by is that the searchers kind of stayed pretty high. I thought mm-hmm. it was a film that was going to start dropping pretty precipitously. Yeah. Um, and I would be very surprised if it doesn't drop precipitously or drop all the way off by the next ten years. Just because, as you're saying, I actually agree with everything that you're saying. Like, mm-hmm. I agree that that is a take. I under. I, I watched the searchers as well fairly fairly recently in the last probably five years, and my take was. I understand that this film at the time was about a man, as you're saying, like the world moving past this man. The problem is the film kind of gets shot in the foot by time having moved so far past him now mm-hmm. that now the film starts and you're just like, oh, this guy is awful. It's not about moving past him. It, the film starts with it. you already so far past him. It's hard for that message to really come across unless you really actively are engaging with like, remember the time period that this was made in and remember da 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 all of these things, you know? So it really has become, I think, a film that is more a piece of um, academically or kind of academic film history than a film that actually plays well and can be understood by a general audience nowadays. I I think if you sat down the random person, they would be very uh, confused and possibly offended by the searchers nowadays. And I do think that's where kind of the politics of things comes into play and why I would think like, that movie would start falling down the list, I would think. Um, but it is one that I've seen pointed out of being like, I'm surprised that's still so high on the list. I was personally like, I'm surprised that's still so high on the list. Um, just because of the political take around it. I don't think it's a bad movie still. Like, I can still understand it from the academic perspective. But I do, I, I would be surprised if that doesn't start falling off quite a bit. Um, yeah, 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 I was going to so. say, oh, well, no, I was going to say of like, if, you know, us talking about kind of what stuff stayed, what stuff, came um you know i was reading uh the new york times did like a really great piece kind of breaking down like the shifts this list has had over the years and talking about you know the filmmakers that have the most spots on the list still are jean-luc godard and alfred hitchcock each of them having four but then curiously pointing off like ingmar bergman used to have like four films on this list in the last several polls but then now three of those have have jumped off uh persona is really like the only film of his that's still on here which was i i mean just an interesting observation i don't know if you had any you know insight into that but the idea of like oh yeah bergman maybe being someone who is maybe coming uh you know some of his movies coming a little out of favor or i don't even know if it's out of favor because i thought another interesting perspective i saw i forget who mentioned it on twitter maybe it was adam Naiman, but an idea of like certain filmmakers not making the list because there's no kind of consensus masterpiece around them of like Howard Hawks being a great example and people being like, how is there not a Howard Hawks movie on here? And it kind of making sense of like, well, no, you got to get kind of like consensus votes to get on this list. And Howard Hawks is one of those filmmakers where I'm sure you and I have different favorite Howard Hawks movies. You know, you could get like 10 people in a room and there's so many different genres he worked in that like it's kind of hard to pin down like one is like this is the clear-cut favorite on the list or even something like there's no Spielberg on the mo- on the list I'm sure there's dozens of Spielberg movies that people if each person could have a different different idea of like this is the signature important Spielberg movie I could say Jaws someone else could say Schindler's List there's a big AI push happening right now I'm sure someone could say AI um, you know, so that that's even another fascinating aspect to this is like filmmakers that maybe don't have like consensus picks not being uh, on this list. But, you know, in terms of like diversity, 
this is the first time I think like multiple movies by women sort of made the list. This was um, the first time films from black filmmakers made the list, like Do the Right Thing made the list, Daughters of the Dust. First time ever a film uh, about LGBTQ characters made the list with um, a peach pong where Seth Rickles, uh which one was it? Uh, Trump, tro- 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 tropical malady. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was gonna say syndromes of of uh, symmetry, but I was like, that's not the right one. Um, but tropical malady, great, great movie. Anyway, um, and then I think the most controversial thing was the the addition of several more recent movies. Um, you know, there was notably four movies that came out within the last six years that made the list: uh, Get Out, Parasite um moonlight and then portrait of a lady on fire which showed up at number 30 on the list um and i i think i think i don't know what your perspective is on that i i think it's interesting because i think it both reflects kind of the that's a movie that i think has a very passionate internet fan base and that being like reflective of of that movie's status at the moment um, while also can maybe understand like a little bit of the gripe from people that'd be like, I don't know, that movie came out in 2019. Or are we, are we sure that's like, this holds up that like, that wasn't that long ago. Um, but you know, in, in kind of, as we said earlier, like these, these lists are all for, for fun. And I think it's, it's a little bit hysterical to get too upset about them, but I'm, I'm curious what were kind of your thoughts on sort of the addition of like a lot of newer movies into this list, which I think was something people were expecting but then i think still kind of surprised at just how many showed up there there is a lot that i want to talk on that you just threw out there <laughs> i wish i had been taking notes i was like i need Sorry. to go back to this and this and this <laughs> um uh i'm gonna try to start like kind of the earliest thing that you said and one of the things i really wanted to talk about and something i've kind of actually already made a joke about uh you intro this by saying like why is my favorite your favorite movie at 39 not at 38 or something like that and i said my favorite movie isn't on here my favorite movie is a howard hawks movie yeah, <laughs> there you go <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um as you said no howard hawks movies made it in i think it could possibly be that there's no consensus on howard hawks and what is the best i'm still kind of surprised that none made it in because so yeah. many of his are not only very well liked but very like influential in starting off genres once you get to kind of um talk sound films he really started a lot of different genres and really came made kind of like you know the prototype of what most of these genres became um my favorite howard hawks movie and my favorite movie of all time is um only angels have wings Mm. um so i'm you know not overly surprised that that movie didn't make it in because it's not generally i think considered widely his best i think there's a growing um kind of Uh, movement behind it but it's nowhere near i would expect to see it on this list i'm surprised that something you know like uh bringing a baby maybe didn't make it on i that would be the other one of his i would put on just because it is like the quintessential screwball comedy Um, yeah i feel like that and red and red river are kind of maybe the the two most known ones but even then kind of like to further prove our point like his girl friday is my favorite howard hawks movie so like there there you go like a different person could say a different thing yeah, and if I had to put money on which one would come in, I probably would be His Girl Friday. I think it's the most widely liked of his movies. Um, and it is kind of, again, like a prototype romantic comedy. I, I, and I think it plays perfectly today as it does back then. Um, but yeah, Howard Hawks didn't make it in. For whatever reason, you know, there's a long history on, you know, did anyone respect Howard Hawks movies at the time, despite them being very popular? He was part of the whole um, 
Hitchcock, Hitchcock, Hoxie, and whatever it is, uh, kind of reevaluation and kind of the start of the auteur movement. He was a big kind of director that became part of that reevaluation of how we look at movies. And yet he tends to not appear on films, on film lists like this. And kind of, I think his, uh, I think one of the things he's kind of like nicknamed as is the greatest American director nobody knows about is often how he's referred to. So, I mean, I'm not shocked that he doesn't make it in. Um, I'm a, a, a little, a little like if I'm going to have a gripe about it, I was like, oh, Howard Hawks movie should be in the, t- the best 100 of all time. Like one of his should be in here. Uh, his entire body of work and a lot of individual films, I think are worth getting in there. Um, as to why, yeah, maybe it is the no one can pick a single one. I think Spielberg kind of, as you mentioned, in the same take on that. I think that more is a reflection of this list is very against like kind of mainstream movies. Like your sight and sound poll is not going to put in like blockbusters or anything like that. I personally think that's a mistake. I think if you're, you know, if you're talking about the greatest films, films, it, again, it kind of gets into, okay, what are your criteria for what a film is and what makes it great? Um, you know, I more look at film as kind of more broadly as a piece of art. I think more broadly, art is about connecting people and you can find connection with people either in like very small intimate films like something like Jean Bielman, where, you know, maybe you're not feeling a great connection with a lot of people and you don't get to talk to a lot of people about it because not a lot of people have seen it. But when watching it, you can feel maybe a great connection on an individual basis with the filmmaker or the people or feeling a connection to the people who are trying to express things that then you then recognize when you're watching the film. I think there's also great value in sitting in a room full of people in a theater and feeling the connection of like a laugh or a thrill and being able to talk about that with pretty much everyone you meet on the street. Like, I think there's value in everyone freaking out about the dinosaurs in Jurassic Park and being able to talk about that. Like, I think that is its own connection as well. And I think there's it's important to value those kinds of connections but sight and sound is never going to put those type of movies on their list again that's just kind of their taste um so your spielbergs are not going to make it onto a sight and sound list i just don't think they ever will um then like what you were saying kind of late is talking about like how more recent movies came into this list some people got kind of upset that recent movies came in and this is an argument that i fundamentally don't understand where this comes from somewhat people seem to just say you cannot you cannot evaluate whether a film should be a part of the quote-unquote canon uh within like five or ten years of its release and i just don't i'm like you need to back that up with why like i don't (laughs) understand why do you (laughs) uh i i guess it i guess it's sort of um the only frame I understand it as is like, I'm someone who thinks like you need time to like understand or, or time to like know if something holds up or something like that. That's the only way I could kind of justify it. Um, But you know, I'm not someone who thinks it is like appalling that like a move of, you know, if a movie has like a, you know, enthusiastic, uh, fan base behind it or or you know is just a great well of appreciation behind it i don't think that's wrong either i think even to your point like a lot of people have been pointing out a little bit of the hypocrisy in that scenario of being like a lot of the other sight and sound polls it's 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 been less and less common as the poll has sort of gone on which you know counter argument could to that could be like in the first few polls that came out um you know in the 50s and 60s there's maybe less history to to pull from and so you are pulling more recent movies but um even i thought it 
interesting, like, forget even the last five or six years, you know, it being pretty rare the last couple times they've done this poll for a movie that came out in the last 25 years to sort of make the list or to pierce the list. Um, I think I saw today that the last time a movie kind of entered the list um, from the like previous 25 years was in the 90s when 2001 entered the list. But, you know, in the top 10 for this most recent, we have Bo Travai, In the Mood for Love, and Mulholland Drive, which all came out like 1999, 2000, 2001. Those are fairly recent movies in sort of the grand scheme of things to to make it into the top 10 of like greatest movies ever. Um, you know, I don't have any complaints about those because I like love all three of those movies. And like, I think that's an example of younger people, people more our age being like, okay, I maybe haven't seen something from the 20s or 30s. That doesn't mean it doesn't have value, but of sort of advocating more for something more recent that had more of an impact on them and their journey as a as a film critic, as a film journalist, film scholar, film lover. Um, so that that's maybe kind of my long-winded answer into sort of like the complexities of should should more recent movies be on the list and I'm always like I I I get it that like the shorter span of time it's harder to to tell like what's going to last and what's not while also like I don't know it's it's all for fun and like you know at the at the end of the day I'm also a strong believer that if you don't have like kind of some flex picks in your list like it's not really that fun of a list anyway. <laughs> Right. I kind of, I definitely agree with that too. Um, I just, yeah, I mean, I think, I think your articulation of the argument is kind of what I've heard of the articulation that I have. Um, and I just, it doesn't compute in my brain and I'm not saying that it's not a valid way to make your list, make your list however you want to make your list. If you feel strongly that you can't do that or the film shouldn't be evaluated that quickly, sure, go ahead. It's your list. To me though, it just kind of is like, I don't, know necessarily that you're doing your job as a film critic or as a like a, a, a film historian you know they are an academic they pull from several different fields here if you're not able to look at a current film and place it within the political and historical context immediately like that's kind of your job mm-hmm. and it's not like you know once 20 or even 40 years has passed that it that's going to remain firm we already discussed the searchers and how i think that that's going to fall because of the changing basically social context that it is it is viewed in nowadays and the political context so i mean it's going to that that ground that you're talking about is going to continue moving under your feet and under the feet of the films that you're talking about and films will come up and down because of that john dealman is this from the 70s is from the 70s it's moved up because of political context and social context like this ground will keep moving so if you're not able to take a stand and evaluate a film as it is when it comes out I don't think you're doing your job because you continue to do that with every single movie whenever you make this list. So, I mean, you know, I think a lot of that argument did fall on Portrait of a Lady on Fire because it came in the highest of any of those at 30. I'm very firm in the argument that it absolutely is fine being at 30. I would be fine with it even being higher. I think it is a film that both deals very consciously with the political context of filmmaking and is a very entertaining film at the same time. And comes in at two hours and manages, <laughs> like, it does a lot in two hours. And it is dealing very, uh, very specifically with uh, film theory. And I, I, I just think it's a remarkable film to be able to have pulled off at all. 
um, to do everything that it does. So putting it on the list now pretty immediately, I think it's a very safe choice. If you're going to put anything, I think that's the obvious choice. If you're going to include a film of the last 10 years, you're going to be safe. It's going to stay on the list. I, I, I have no question about that. I think if you can't evaluate Portrait of a Lady on Fire as saying that, like, this is actually a really important film, and if I'm going to put my money on any of it, any of these becoming like a lasting cultural impact or a lasting impact on film, it's going to be Portrait of a Lady on Fire. Like, I think that is kind of a very safe bet to make. Yeah, so let's go through, uh, I, I figure we can kind of go through the, the the top 10, if that makes any sense. We, you know, I, I don't want to as I said, put too much emphasis on like this came in at this spot versus this. I would just encourage anyone, you know, if you're, if you're looking to sort of expand your palette of movies that you've seen, just, I think the looking at the 100 list is just a collection of movies. I, I think that's a great place to start. And, um, you know, I saw on the criterion channel today, they they've made a whole collection of like, I think like, 80 of the 100 movies or something like that are all available to stream on the Criterion channel or something like that. Like a, a large amount of what's on this list, you can stream there. But um, number 10, Singing in the Rain. Uh, number nine, uh, The Man with the Movie Camera, which is, you know, a very like historical academic choice. Eight, as I said, Mulholland Drive. Seven, Beau Travai, the Claire Denis movie, which I, I think is like a perfect example of something that was like very hard to find here in the U.S. for a long time and in the like last couple of years has gotten re-released here and there's been this like big critical push of like, no, this is like one of the great movies of the last several, one of the great movies ever made that's been like very hard to find um, here since it came out, but now is readily available to see. And so it's not surprising that that got a big push here. Six, 2001, A Space Odyssey. Five, In the Mood for Love. Uh, and then, you know, four, three, and two, pretty like consistent, you know, good traditional choices, but I think three movies that are very often at the height of this poll, which is... Uh, Ozu's Tokyo Story at number four, Citizen Kane at number three, Vertigo at number two, and uh, as we said, uh, Jean, Jean Domon at number one. Um, so, yeah, I, I mean, comparing that to the director's list, In the Mood for Love at number 10 on the director's list, nine, Persona, eight, Tarkovsky's Mirror, seven, eight and a half, six, Vertigo, Jean Domon, number five. Tokyo Story at four, Godfather at number three, Citizen Kane two, 2001 A Space Odyssey at number one. I, before we move on, do you have any kind of like lar larger things to say about just those two top 10 lists of, of people saying like the best of the best? Not really, other than I think they got the kind of movies that they wanted to get from their poll. I think this is that's a very kind of what I would expect the movies to pull from a sight and sound list. I mean, I think people were a little surprised about Singing in the Rain breaking into the top ten, just because it is more of a, like, more of an entertainment, I think, film. But I think it, I don't know that anyone really argues with Singing in the Rain being No, I mean, you're not gonna if, get if you're going to talk me. about, like, yeah. classic... <laughs> Classic crowd pleaser old Hollywood movie. Like, I can hardly think of a better example than Singing in the Rain. Yeah. And I mean, you know, my controversial or hot take is like the, the lineup of the main list from Mulholland Drive, Bo Travai, and 2001 are all movies I don't personally care for. Whoa. And where my taste uh, diverges from what I think is a pretty traditional taste for sight and sound and kind uh -huh. of a traditional canon taste. Like, I understand they're all very well loved films. Particularly 2001 being a very influential film. I despise 2001. I generally do not like Kubrick. I find him 
uh, too cold of a filmmaker. I don't like the most, like cold filmmakers. And yeah, he's he's. I, I don't get it. I generally don't get any argument when I explain that to people. They're like, yeah, he's really I, cold. I, I will <laughs> say, I recently like rewatched all of his movies and and have maybe was pleasantly surprised how like I found a lot of them way funnier than than I remembered, and and now kind of view his films as like a. <laughs> as technically accomplished as they all are as kind of being like it's a 10 year old drawing like penises on like the whiteboard at his school like that's that they all kind of have that sense of humor in them even like 2001 has like a couple moments like that to me but uh that's we can have you back for a whole different kubrick conversation on another day (laughs) but yeah that's a bombshell to drop in there i know but um, yes yes, i do agree with you his comedies play better for me and i do i do prefer his comedies to something like 2001 which i think takes itself way too seriously Mm -hmm. um but that's beside the point but i mean again like my main takeaway is like yeah i think i think sight and sound got the movies that they wanted to get i i think they selected the kind of people to get the kind of movies that they wanted to highlight in their list well, let's let's move on from from sight and sound and uh, talk about some some recent releases. Uh, I had reached out to you earlier this week because we were going to talk about uh, women talking. Sarah Polly's new movie um, that was supposed to be coming out this week, but then I guess something changed recently that I wasn't aware of, and now it's not coming out until like the end of the month. Um, but you know what? We're going to talk about it anyway because why not? Um, I got a chance to see this movie at TIFF. Um, I think talked about it briefly on the TIFF episode, though. I think it was a movie I was a little... Of all the movies I saw there, it was the one I was the least... I was the most hesitant to kind of jump in on like an immediate reaction and kind of put my finger on, because it still was a movie I was kind of wrestling with like what what I specifically wanted to say about it. Like I think liked it, but was sort of still working through like what 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 is it I have to say about about this movie and what what are the things about it that work for me versus some of the things about it that didn't work for me and so it's it's I meant to kind of revisit it um before we did this episode but just sort of ran out of time with work stuff um but I'm glad that we now have sort of like the space to kind of fully unpack this movie because I do think it's doing a lot sort of aesthetically as well as sort of like politically and textually like in terms of the story um i know you're a big fan of this movie especially having revisited it and looking at your letterbox um so maybe this is the best chance to sort of pass it over to you although i i'll I'll give a brief summary of the movie for anyone who isn't aware of it um it's set in this mennonite community um kind of this small isolated religious colony and the women in there have come to the realization that they've all been sort of sexually abused by the men in the colony for decades for generations upon generations um they're essentially drugged in the middle of the night um raped abused uh pretty much any kind of horrible sexual act you can imagine has been um done unto these women in the middle of the night and when they wake up the next morning sort of bloodied or bruised or pregnant they are essentially told that like demons came and attacked them in the middle of the night because they are sinners um and one night uh some of the women catch a man in the middle of the act and the police arrest him and as all the other men leave town to go bail this this one guy out the women kind of congregate in this barn um and a small handful of them essentially have this debate about what they should do next should they 
stay and forgive the men and hope it doesn't happen again. Should they stay, be firm in what they want to have happen next and potentially fight back if the men say no? Or should they just leave in the middle of the night, never come back, set up tent somewhere else? Um, It's a very, very heavy film. It's, I believe, loosely inspired by something that happened. Although, I, from what I understand, the true story was like in Argentina somewhere. Like the 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 details have been changed very heavily, and I think the movie works more as is meant to be set up more as like allegory. I think than um, necessarily like docudrama, if if that makes any sense. But um, I think with that. Uh, summary intact i'm I'm curious your your thoughts about the the movie so i saw this movie i think uh in kind of a similar situation to you you said you saw it at tiff so i'm yeah. gonna guess that you didn't know a whole lot going in is that correct i knew i think i knew like the vague summary of it and i think it had already premiered at telluride i think that was the very first screening and was like very rapturously received there and so like going into the tiff screening there was a lot of hype and i would say the the reception to it at TIFF was mostly positive, but was a lot more muted than I think the Telluride reaction was like so through the roof and um like, oh my gosh, we have a masterpiece on our hands. Like this is going to run the table on the Oscars. Just like buckle up America until you see this. And people walked out of Toronto and most people liked it. But I, I think people were a little like that was not quite. I think people were a little bit like struggling with some aspects of the movie and it it was, as I said, positive, but more muted than I think it was at that like initial premiere screening. And I would say positive, but muted was my initial reaction to the movie as Mm -hmm. well. Um, So as I said, like I saw it at a film festival um, here where I am in Indiana, it's called the Heartland Film Festival. They've been doing a really good job of getting like kind of these big awards movies um, coming in to do a one a one showing thing. Um, Women talking was one of them. And so I think it played like a week after it played uh, at TIFF. So it was like one of the earliest screenings here. I had managed to avoid really anything about what the specific detail of the plot was about. I I was aware that it was very well received and that it was from Sarah Polly, who Mm -hmm. was the director and writer, I believe of the film. Yes. Um, Okay. It's adapted from a book that was roughly based on some true story, if I recall the exact scenario correctly. Yes, 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 you are correct. <laughs> um, anyway, so, like, that's kind of all I knew. And um, going into it, I have to say, like, I, I've liked lots of Sarah Polly's films. I've not loved any of Sarah Polly's films up until this point. So my expectations weren't maybe quite as high as other people. And then I was really caught off guard by, like, what this film ended up being, which is a really funny thing to say afterwards, because it's also, this movie is also exactly what the title says it is. It's a bunch of women talking. Like, so yes. <laughs> there, there, is, there is coincidentally, like, even, like, one man in the movie, like, Ben Wishaw plays the one, like, man who has not been in the colony, but, like, moved back with his mother. So they're like, you're cool. You haven't done anything. You can sit in on there. And, like, I almost humorously, like, every time he talked, like, thought one of them was going to, like, whip their head around and be like, shut up, Ben. It's called women talking. Shut up. (laughs) Fair. Um, So, yeah, I'm aware that that's kind of, like, a really funny statement to say, but I think it's also really accurate, and it's a good thing to warn people of before going in, because this is not... The reason it's surprising is it's not a film with, like, a very traditional narrative. No. It is really, like, a talk... It's a film of people talking, and it's 
the film starts out with a, I believe, a title card that says, like, this is this is an imagination or this is a dream scenario of some sort. Um, and it does very much feel like that once you kind of understand what this film is about. What, what the film is actually doing is taking a very extreme uh, version of what exists in real life in that, you know, there's a lot of gendered violence going on within our culture. Um, and then kind of behind closed doors, certain people get to have conversations, basically these exact conversations that happen in this film over the course of your life. Like I've certainly been privy to a lot of conversations and have been a part of a lot of conversations uh, the same conversations that happen in this movie. It's just in real life, you can't do that all in the course of an hour and a half. It's very taxing. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Like this is, that's a, this is very taxing things to discuss. What they end up discussing is basically, um, I think, as you said, you know, there's a whole scenario of there's, there's been this sexual violence that is a part of their culture, basically. And so the women have decided to sit down and say, okay, we have three options here. Which one are we going to choose on how to move forward, given that this is the culture that we're in? Um, I initially very much like pulled back at this scenario of like, here's these three options and here's solutions because in, in my point of view of having these conversations for um, almost 35 years now, since that's how old I am and kind of having been a part of that culture uh, and kind of been a part of these conversations that do happen behind closed doors. Um, there's not an answer. Like the, the, the idea that there is an answer or a solution or there's three options or any options that's going to fix this immediately is like a complete dream scenario to me. And like, even with the title card saying like, this is an imagination, da, 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 I still just kind of like pulled back and was just like, Ooh, I don't like them. Like supposing that there's like a solution, such a tidy, such tidy solutions and such tidy options. So I think, I think the more difficult part of those kinds of conversations for me that I've had in my life is the fact that there isn't, there, there aren't options, there aren't solutions here. And, and I think the film on a second watch was much more cognizant of that. I think I reacted too strongly to that perhaps the first time through. I think the second time I watched it, they did get in much more uh, kind of within the course of the conversation to the fact that there's not answers to this and that these are much more complicated solutions. This is a much more complicated scenario than uh, a film could really deal with. Or that, again, that there is a solution. Um, once I kind of got past that on the second watch, the film became much more like rich and full to me. Um, what I really loved the second time around was the pacing of the movie and kind of the flow of the movie. As I said, like, and as the title says, this is a movie of a bunch of people talking. So it's essentially a movie about a conversation. And I think this movie is really skilled at capturing the flows of conversations. Like, yes, as I said, no one has all of these conversations condensed together within like an, an, an hour and a half, two hours, I forget how long this film is, or even within the supposed course of the film, I think it's only a couple days that this film actually takes place in, in world. Yeah, it's, it's, I feel like it starts like in the afternoon and goes overnight and then like the movie ends like the next morning or something like that. It, it's like a 12 yeah. hour period or something that the movie is set in. Yeah, it's a very condensed period of time that these conversations, no one would have the energy to have these <laughs> that many conversations in that period of time. But I do think in condensing it, they're very good at kind of showing the ebb and flow of a conversation and showing the ebb and flow of how you have to take breaks when you're talking about these things. And what's really surprising about this movie, I think, once you kind of get into it, even the first time around, I was really surprised is that it hits you with the scenario, which is just like, oh, that's heavy. Mm -hmm. And then it becomes funny. Like, it becomes quite funny in a lot of places. Like, there's some really... I really was like laughing out loud at certain times throughout the movie. Like there's really funny lines. And I think that's very astute to be like, yes, 
in the course of these conversations, you're cracking jokes and you're doing silly things and you're having to emotionally remove yourself every once in a while from this because you just need a break. So the second time around, I was much more kind of forgiving of what this film had to do uh, in in order to basically present these very difficult conversations that happens over the course of someone's life um, in order to kind of basically its purpose, I think, is to give people a glimpse of these conversations if you have if you aren't privy to them or for the people who are privy to them to kind of have the catharsis of being like, yeah, everyone's having these conversations, too. Yeah, I I think. Even I'm that makes me curious to see it again, because I think one of the one of the criticisms after I saw it that I I kind of agreed with a little bit was sort of like the the solution to what to do seeming a little a little too obvious, like upon first note, like definitely was, you know, in the days following when it it played at TIFF, like being in line, like working through my feelings on it with people. And, um, you know, I, I forget who it was, but hearing someone be like it kind of feels like you're sitting around for them to kind of get to the obvious sort of like, we need to leave sort of thing. And sort of like the arguments for them staying, not being convincing enough to sort of like make it like to make the drama and the conflict in the movie really like hit with the same punch and push and pull that you want. Um, I, I think it's, it's also like an interesting movie because it's it's very stagey. Like not just that the time is compressed, but it's pretty much all happening in this one barn. And then Sarah Polly using these kind of very Malachian uh, flashbacks or sort of um, cutaways to children playing in fields and stuff like that. And it is trying to, as you said, even with like that beginning opening kind of title card, it's trying to have this sort of broad allegorical feel to it. Um, and be sort of like we are taking all of the issues and conversations sur- surrounding violence that men perpetrate against women and how women can escape that. We're putting that all into this sort of like one kind of pressure cooker stage play, essentially. Um, and and I I I think some of my push and pull with the movie is finding all of those ideas and conversations really really interesting. And I think this also has like the best ensemble cast of the year or one of the best. I mean, playing the various women, you have Rooney Mara, Claire Foy, Jesse Buckley, um, very briefly, Frances McDormand, although that's like, she's maybe in two scenes in the entire movie. Um, And as we mentioned, Ben Wishaw, who's sort of this outsider man who's allowed to sort of sit in on the, the proceedings and kind of help them, help them make this conversation a little bit more civil and not just sort of waste time by like people going at each other's throats. Um, But finding it, I think some of my frustration the first time was sort of wondering, okay, is this something that maybe would work better as a stage play? And sort of finding some of the more kind of Malick elements of it being Polly trying a little bit worried that it is becoming too stagey and sort of trying to find a way to balance that. But some of those extra flourishes, um, as well as I think there's been a lot of, back and forth about the color palette of this movie, which is like very, very desaturated. And, and I, you know, in, I think intentionally very kind of ugly and cold to look at. Um, but, you know, I think that being something that kind of like, I remember, I, I remember standing in lines and people being like, why did women talking look so ugly? It'd be like, it, I mean, it's about people that feel like they've had the life sucked out of them or, or are living in this sort of like this, 
prison world that's sort of like sapped of any joy after they've they've come to this realization like it it should have this kind of monochrome steel look to it um so i don't know that's that's sort of like where i'm sort of at with the movie is i find kind of the conversations and the sort of stage play aspects of it very interesting and kind of giving these actors these like great speeches to sort of fire off against each other while maybe the 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 way that Sarah Polly tries to broaden that and make it more cinematic, I feel like feels a little bit more kind of fumbling and awkward as opposed to just sort of like this tight script with just, we need, I, like I almost kept wondering sitting through it, like how would this feel if you were just watching this on stage and like, you are in here with this room. Like we are, we can't leave this room and we have to work through these conversations like in real time right now we we can't cut away to the children in the field we can't flash back to something that happened with someone else like we have to be in this moment at this time now and feel sort of like the ticking clock of like we have to come up with a decision about this by dawn if that makes sense yeah i can understand that um perspective it it does feel like a play it's it's almost kind of surprising that it's not an adaptation of play it feels like a movie that was adapted from a play right i don't know if that's a more of a budget issue or not i i I do not know anything about the budget of this movie i'd be shocked if it got much of a budget at all just given given what it's about it's not going to make huge bucks um uh so i don't know if they were just mostly confined to that kind of barn setting where everyone has the conversation in order to do this but uh I gotta say, I didn't have any of the issues that a lot of people were coming out and kind of talking about, like you were saying afterwards. Like, I was hearing the same things. Why is the color palette like that? Mm-hmm. All about the color palette. And I was like, they're depressed, as you basically right. elaborated on. I was like, they're depressed. It didn't even, it was funny to me when I walked out and everyone, like, I'll, I'll, be, I'll be frank. I was the only non-cis man who watched this as a film critic where I was. So all of a sudden I was standing in the circle of other critics that were there. We were kind of discussing it afterwards. And like, it was all men and then cis men and then me. And I was like, oh, this is kind of an awkward dynamic here. And then they brought up that this color palette thing. And I literally had a moment of just silently standing there like, I didn't even notice the color palette. Like it didn't even register with me. It just felt right. Like Mm -hmm. what I realized in watching it the second, I was just like, Oh, like I just registered it as like the depressed mood of the people. Like, so I didn't even really register that it was like a choice or was odd. It just established the mood that it felt appropriate to me for these conversations. Um, so that, that one has caught me off guard quite a bit. Um, to what you were saying about like, yes, it is a little stagey in the way it does it. You saying that you didn't really like when it pulled back. I actually found those moments really effective. I think this movie does several montages that mm. is, is it involves a lot of those moments as where, as you were saying, you were pulling back and like seeing children playing or seeing the children uh, or other people or kind of glimpses of what the, the, their culture was normally like if everyone was around. And I, I found those moments really affecting because those were the moments where you were taking, they tended to be talking about uh, the stuff that they were talking about and pulling it out into the broader context um, and I found those moments just where 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 it pulled it where it pulled these conversations out of this very specific scenario that they have set up and made all the connections to regular life. Like one in particular really stands out to me is one where they're talking about 
I believe it's actually Ben Washaw's character is talking for <laughs> one of the times. Like he starts elaborating on like they're having this conversation of just like, okay, so if they go, who can they pick? Can they pick children? Mm. Can they pick boys? And then he's they basically ask him of just like, okay, so there's this awkward age of like thirteen to fifteen or something like that. Of like, do you do you think boys of thirteen or fifteen are basically too dangerous or too far gone by what culture has taught them? Or can we include them? And do you think they can basically be reformed? And Ben Wishaw goes on this big conversation about what boys are like at that age. And it really pulls back and show, and does this montage of all of these boys and kind of showing them uh, kind of just these brief glimpses, like you're saying, kind of malachy things of just like him talking over these very brief glimpses of life of these boys. And I found things like that to be so evocative. And I, I think she was doing she was doing little Malachi takes very well, in mm. my opinion. I found it very affecting to pull back for a few moments. And that allowed her to do it very, very quickly and not take a huge amount of time to do those things. I also think one of my initial takeaways when I saw it at TIFF was not just it being an allegory for, as we said, kind of like violence men perpetrate against women, but also an allegory for communities learning to move on from, from trauma um you know the 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 other allegorical through line i thought of was something like um uh you know like what happened earlier this year in uvalde texas and so, and stuff like that and i i think seeing this kind of like a couple months after that all happened and you know the questions of like how do we move on to normal life after this horrible thing has happened to us do we do we forgive do we push back do we just move on somewhere else and how like there's oftentimes not a very clear indication of like what what to do next and that that almost being the aspect of the movie i found most moving was just sort of like how do we move on from something that has like totally shattered the community we live in has like totally upended our our sense of reality um our sense of what can happen to us and what is the net how do we take that first step forward and that's something that being even even broader than the sort of me too allegory of it was something i found kind of moving and and to me another interesting idea that that Polly was kind of tapping into with this yeah i mean kind of related to that is one of the interesting things that's really come out of this conversation of the film playing in festivals is that there's been this lot of momentum going behind kind of the actresses for awards races mm -hmm. and i found that very interesting um having seen the film because they're not playing real characters to me kind no. of to what you're talking about i would say that they are playing uh trauma responses they're kind of like prototypical trauma responses and they all kind of represent different responses to these sorts of things um and that that is what surprises me as like this is a big acting award scene movie because like i don't know that they're i i don't know that there's necessarily good arcs to those characters a lot of them um the second time around a, a lot of a lot of the attention i think is landing on claire foy right now one she's kind of one of the bigger names in the cast and two i think she is the kind of angry one right um, it's, so like, it's, she gets these big clips things yeah it's, it a, it's a classic <laughs> example of like well who's the person that shouts the most in the ensemble that's the one we'll yeah. give them the award for <laughs> um i think rooney mara has the better character and honestly the better performance which is kind of surprising to me because i've never cared for rooney mara too much Interesting. before to mm -hmm. be honest um 
but she plays this kind of like almost borderline ethereal character um, that kind of rubbed me the wrong way the first time around. The second time around, I found that her character is actually the one that changes the most and actually really engages with different sides of the com- different sides of the argument and actually changes her opinion the most. Um, and so I, I found like that kind of that kind of way of handling character more as again to do this big allegory thing of just like they're all just like kind of different responses to it they're not really people nor are they really intended to be people that's not, that's not a fault of the film i want to be clear um that kind of plays into what you were saying yeah like th- this is really just playing out a scenario and um how people respond to a a very extreme scenario like this one thing i do want to ask just because i'm very curious and it's also come up i think in every conversation i've had about this film Uh is i want your opinion there is a scene around the middle of the film where all of a sudden um someone comes in to take the census Mm -hmm. and daydream believer starts playing yeah and i'm very curious i've heard so many arguments on what this is and i can't figure out either do you think that song actually plays or is that in someone's head i think I think it actually plays. I I sort of took that as as a signal to us of this sort of wider world that keeps kind of like it you know that there's a wider world that like is at these characters' fingertips. Um and that they, you know, the the choice to it almost be it almost being a signal to the audience of like this isn't some like village situation or like this isn't this isn't something that is like set in a even though this community is sort of Amish esque um you know in the sense of like they you know they're they're living there's no like technology they're you know riding in horse drawn buggies and you know ve- wearing very kind of like old timey clothes and stuff like that and everything's sort of made from hand you know the world that these characters is not occupying is modern but you know showing that there is this kind of out outside world that is not that far away it's not like they're that isolated and it's not like it's that far for them to kind of like move into the wider world if that makes any sense and and their unwillingness to sort of like they all run inside and hide from from that and i think that also indicating kind of the sort of intense rules in this community about like who they can engage with and who specifically the women can and can't engage with and how willing they are to have outsiders come into their presence i i I guess i'm rambling a little bit to be like i think that scene sort of shows you the dynamic in the community and what their relationship is to the outside world if that makes any sense no, absolutely. Like, I, I think I land very close to you on what I think that scene is supposed to be or how it's supposed to play. Um, I, I just found that there's always led to, like, very differing opinions and very yeah. interesting, like, indications on how people read this film. I think it's a very key scene, and I think it very smartly, again, having watched it the second time, I, like, replayed that scene a few times to be like, okay, so where does the song start? Like, what are we looking at? And where does it end? Um, and how do people react to it within the film? And is there a way to read it? I think it can, I think it's perfectly valid to read it all these different ways um, that I've heard people argue that it does happen in the film, that it's uh, actually a part of the dream element, that it's not actually really happening. You know, Um, I think Sarah Polly plays that movement, that, that moment kind of perfectly. And I think it does kind of indicate and really emphasize kind of as you were dancing around kind of that hazy border this movie has of the dreamlike elements and the unreality that it deals that it gets into in order to be able to just present these conversations um so condensed 
but then also being very clear that this is very close and is very much a thing that happens in the real world that is not a part of this isolated community and that it is something that um, affects everyone that's sitting around you um, that you yeah. in the theater and that you encounter in your life that people are having these conversations every single day around you whether you're aware of them or not well before we wrap up i did kind of want to our women talking conversation did sort of remind me of something else that i i saw recently that actually is out this weekend so maybe this is a, a good opportunity to actually like you know charge into the the title of the show and discuss something that actually is the latest thing that's out there um I saw Emancipation a couple nights ago, the the Will Smith slavery drama um, that's directed by Antoine Fuqua and has been kind of like a big question mark sort of later in the year because Apple sort of pushed it back after Will Smith's Oscar controversy and then pushed it up. Um, I don't want to read too much into it for fear of misreporting, but it sort of seemed to me that that decision had more to do with uh, a couple other big Apple projects sort of not being ready to release later in the year, like Killers of the Flower Moon or the Napoleon movie. Um, but in any case, it's out, and I know there's been a lot of chatter of like, all right, is this like a big awards con- contender? Is this like Will Smith's comeback vehicle? Um, I kind of don't think it's ne- either. Um, and it, it, it's, it's an interesting parallel to women talking because it also has like a, I mean, you think the color palette in women talking is desaturated. Uh, I mean, the emancipation is like, so sucked of color to, to just being like on the edge of almost teetering into black and white of like, that's how like monochrome and, and gray it is. Um, and is a movie I walked out. I, I will say I did not enjoy myself. Um, part, although there is part of me that's like, it's a movie about slavery. You're, you're not supposed to enjoy yourself, but I think, you know, compared to some of the other, I think great works, um, surrounding this topic that have come out in recent years, it doesn't quite have the, the sort of subtlety of something like Steve McQueen's 12 years a slave or the kind of allegorical magical realism of Barry Jenkins underground railroad, which I still feel like is underrated. Like I know that show, like, like, I don't, I don't, I don't know whether just like people didn't watch it or like Amazon didn't care to like put it in front of people, but like that's kind of like one of the great works that I feel like five or six people like talked about when that came out, and then everyone else was like, "Oh, what? How long is it?" Nah, um, or even it doesn't quite. Emancipation doesn't quite have what something like Django Unchained has in sort of taking the taking the slavery element of it seriously, but sort of putting it in this sort of pulpier genre vessel um, and to sort of, I think, give you a more propulsive story, if that makes sense. Um, Because there is an aspect to this movie where Will Smith plays a slave who learns that um, of the Emancipation Proclamation and that Lincoln is going to be freeing all the slaves, just decides to run away from uh, his captors and is being sort of chased through the Louisiana swamp by uh, slave hunters. Um, And there is an aspect of it that it's like a little bit of a pulpy genre movie. And obviously Antoine Fuqua, you know, who probably most recognizable for uh, doing training day, you know, is, is I think a fairly talented, like action crime movie filmmaker. And you can see a more sort of like, rugged propulsive B movie version of this, but that it winds up feeling like 
What are your feelings on the Revenant, Emily? <laughs> so it's out of nowhere. <laughs> so I haven't seen Emancipation yet, so I'll just clarify that. Yes. So maybe it's not out of nowhere if I have seen Emancipation. Um, uh, I was bored by the Revenant for most of it. I thought it was like, we've been here, done this, and you're acting like it's this grand piece of cinema that I should be blown away by. And I was like, I've seen it. Move on, like, faster. So Move faster. Emancipation <laughs> is kind of like, what if the Revenant, but it also kind of like looked really ugly too, like does not even have like... The Revenant, for as much as that movie is sort of like a a like almost over the top punishing slog of a movie to sit through, you can at least be like, I mean, I I I, I get you're trying to like show off Alejandro and Yuritu, and like this is well made, even if this movie like feels like you're like holding me down and like beating me in the face, being like, are you su- do you understand yet? Do you understand the suffering and the and emancipation kind of is that it feels like will smith and antoine fuqua trying to do their version of the revenant for will smith um and kind of taking i think this sort of potentially inspirational in some cases thrilling powerful story of one man's sort of quest for freedom and to reconnect with his family um and kind of makes it this like very viscerally ugly like dark grotesque movie that has like beheadings and like an alligator fight and all and and turns into like a very bloody intense war movie in the last 30 minutes i i don't know i'm i'm i also recognize that there's maybe something a little bit sort of like flippant about me saying that is sort of a sort of a straight white male um and certainly don't begrudge anyone who sees this and has some sort of like really powerful reaction to it i i just it seemed like a movie that was overworking to be like brutal and punishing to the point of sort of like losing any kind of humanity at its center if that makes any sense yes that makes sense but you mentioned that there's alligators so then my brain just immediately was like but is it as good as crawl because no (laughs) no i was like talk about an out of left field connection there i'm just like crawl is if you haven't seen crawl anybody crawl is a really great b movie yes uh, just monster movie of the last uh couple years it's just about like alligators in a house and they're going after people it's a really fun b movie highly recommend Yes, very, very, very fun movie. Yes, but I, I just, I only had to mention Emancipation because uh, it is out now, and I think it has been, at, at least in in the people in my life, it's been sort of this this big question mark of like, oh, is this like, is this going to be the Will Smith comeback movie? Um, and I'm sure that will happen eventually. Um, I I don't know that this is going to to be to be it. Um, is what I'll say about Emancipation. It sounds like a tough one to kind of do his kind of comeback. It feels like a, it feels like from what you're describing a movie that more was like intended to be kind of more in his turn towards serious stuff to yes. be taken seriously yes. than intended as a comeback. I don't yes. know if that's necessarily like indicative of what he is well loved for. Yeah, this was already in the can before Oscar night um and and was set to come out this year and as I said sort of then got pushed back fearing that the the slap controversy would push people away from seeing it and then it sounds like apple made the decision to push it forward um you know it does seem like a movie that has very lofty oscar ambitions but i think in in the ambition to to be an important movie it it, it is like i i think oversteps how sort of 
grotesque in your face and brutal it and punishing it I, that is like the, really the best word for it is just like an absolute punishing movie to to sit through so take it's that for what you mistake. will yeah. yeah i mean it's a common mistake for a lot of awards movies i guess to kind of circle back i will say it is exactly the mistake that women talking avoids women talking for for it for its for what it's talking about it is not at all i would say a punishing movie to watch well emily thank you again as always for for stopping by to talk thank you for having me less cinema <laughs> Um, coming up in the next few weeks, next week, we'll be talking about, uh, Guillermo del Toro's Pinocchio movie, uh, which is quite delightful. I thought, um, as well, we will be talking about another movie saw at TIFF, uh, the Darren Aronofsky's The Whale, which we're just making faces at each other. <laughs> we'll leave it at there. I mean, I, I've been pretty, I talked about it on the TIFF episode. I don't feel like I'm being cagey with, with what, with what I thought about it, but I, I, another like, let's, let's buckle up for some, some, some dis discourse, not, not even really like, is this problematic discourse, but of just like, what is go? What is what on earth is going on in this movie? Um, that kind of there's a lot to unpack there. Yes. Curious to hear what you have to say with your yes. Uh, and then of course you know we'll be talking about uh, towards the holidays we'll be talking about uh, Avatar: The Way of Water, Glass Onion, White Noise, Babylon, uh, a lot of the big uh, fall Christmas season films.